Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Who are you and why does it matter? Who are you? And why does it matter? And we're going to work hard a little bit on this this morning, but it's going to be good for us. So if you want to go to Romans 8, uh, the the passage will appear up behind me as well, but you can read along too. That will be good. And we're going to think about who are you and why does it matter? So Romans 8, 15 to 17 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So who are you and why does it matter? Uh, And we've been, as a church, uh, working through a series on Romans 8, Life in the Spirit, uh, and really looking at what it means to live in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, what that means for us in everyday life. And today I want us to understand our identity, and that's what we're going to be thinking about. And it's very easy to make identity quite complicated. In fact, we live in a point in history and a particular culture which is making understanding our identity very complicated. Even deciding who gets to say what our identity is is a big debate, but actually it's very simple. Our identity is who you are and why does it matter? So the who you are bit is is a very important question, but actually can become a little bit head knowledge and doesn't necessarily affect behaviour. So I have a few different identities. I'm not like Superman or anything like that that's hidden, but I'm father, I'm husband, I'm son, I'm an uncle, uh, I'm a friend, I'm an employee and probably others as well. So, uh, uh, for example, I'm a friend. So I am John Langley's friend. That's right. I'm John's friend. Uh, And I know that in my head. But in order for that to be real, every now and again, I have to stick him a message and say, should we go to the pub? Or he does the same for me. Uh, And so that friendship goes from just being in our head to actually being real. So we went to the pub this week, me and John, and it was good fun. Uh, And so it goes from head into reality. I have to live out my identity as a friend. Now, Paul is attempting to describe this, this who we are and why it matters beyond just head knowledge. He could give us a list of things that we are in Jesus, a list of theological statements and concepts, but actually he wants us to understand what it means in our lives. Uh, And he is describing people who are led by the Spirit. That's their identity. So he's describing someone who has had an encounter with Jesus, has has met Jesus, has made Jesus their Lord and their Saviour, and has engaged with the Holy Spirit's work in their life. And, peop- and Paul calls these people sons. That's what he describes them as. He calls them a son. Now, being a son actually is, a, is an important concept in, in the Christian faith, to be a son of God actually is very important for us. And as Paul describes this, he's not excluding daughters. He's actually trying to reflect the social standing that sons had a couple of thousand years ago in his era. So sons would have inherited 
uh, from their father. They would have inherited any property, but family tradition, family name as well. And daughters at that point would have just joined other families. So that's how they would have understood it. So a family like mine, I'm I'm the father of two daughters and no sons, 2,000 years ago in Paul's era, I would have been a bit concerned about that. What's going to happen to the inheritance? What's going to happen to the family name and traditions? And in some parts of the world today, that would still be true. But our kind of Western modernist worldview sees daughters very differently. Thank goodness. But son, being a son for Paul, actually, we need to get the kind of eternal significance of it. But he was writing to men and women as well. So I will talk about children and sons today, but you have to hear sons and daughters. We need to get that. So who you are and why does it matter? Well, Paul is describing these people led by the Spirit. And in describing, he, he lays out four characteristics of people who are led by the Spirit. And we will just kind of use this to to look at ourselves and ask ourselves where we are at with this, whether these characteristics describe us. So if we are led by the Spirit, we are firstly, our first characteristic is we are children, not slaves. Children, not slaves. So he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we, Paul is saying, look, you are sons, you are children, you are adopted children, you are brought in to the family of God. That is your uh, position. Now, it's important with this, it can be quite easy to become quite sentimental about this sort of thing. uh, And we can use our own experience to colour how we view the family of God or God as a father. And we can be quite unfair and start comparing our own parents to God. Now, which is no comparison that any of us are ever going to match up to. This could be good or bad. My parents were very good parents. I had a loving, supporting, encouraging uh, home life, uh, very stable. I get on well with my mum and dad still. But like all humans, they have insecurities, they have sins, they have failings. My dad had a model train set, for example, struggling still to, to process that. That was a joke for Anthony there. He's now actually quite upset with me. It's not a sin or a failing. It's all right. It's a bit odd, but it's not a sin or a failing. I'm just joking. I'm partially joking. That was my childhood. Anyway, so we don't compare gods with our actual parents, but because Paul is painting a picture for us of how we change. That's what he's trying to describe. When God begins to work in us through Jesus by the Spirit, Paul is saying, actually, you are released from slavery into family. Now, often when we think in terms of uh, slavery and being released from slavery, we might think we go from slavery to freedom. That's quite easy for us to understand. But actually, that's not what Paul says here. He's saying, look, we are released from slavery into relationship, into family. It's a very deep spiritual reality, isn't it? And it affects who we are and how we behave. It's a change of identity. You're no longer a, a slave. And Paul doesn't say, you're now free. He says, actually, you're now part of a family. You're now a son. You're now adopted. You're now a child of God. Big change there. So when the Spirit falls on us, when we receive the Holy Spirit, when uh, we are given something in the Holy Spirit, uh, something happens to us. So if we were to read through all of Acts, we would see numbers of times the Holy Spirit falls on people and then their lives change significantly. 
So just for example, you can look at Peter uh, and the uh, first group of apostles in that room on Pentecost, hidden away, pretty scared. The Holy Spirit falls on them and suddenly their whole world changes. They find themselves on the street preaching and doing all sorts of astounding things. But they in themselves had changed as well. There was a very deep spiritual reality that affected who they, un- who they thought they were and how they behaved. It was a big change of identity. They received a spirit of adoption in that moment. Now, in Roman times, uh, adoption is pretty interesting. Actually, I was reading about um, uh, Caesar Augustus, and he actually adopted a number of adults to be his heirs. And actually, he kept outliving them. So he had to uh, finally adopt another one when he was quite old to become his heir. Uh, And when you were adopted in Roman times, it was the same as now, exactly the same rights and privilege and inheritance as a natural born son or daughter. You are bought into the family. So that's what they would have understood. And as we think about this as well, it's easy to make identity quite cold and impersonal. But Paul is describing relationship, isn't he? Child to father, clearly influenced by Jesus when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane at his most difficult moment in his whole life. And he called out to the father. He called Abba Father right before his death. And there is a big difference for Paul and for us in the relationship between a father and a child and between a slave and a master. And slavery is a life based on fear. That's what Paul is saying. If you're a slave, you can fall back into fear. Don't do this. So let's understand a little bit of what it meant to be a slave, what Paul had in mind when he was thinking of being having a spirit of slavery and a spirit of adoption. So slaves would be achievement orientated, wouldn't they? If you were a slave, you had no meaningful relationship with your owner, or perhaps you just knew them as your owner, your boss. And so therefore, it was about your performance. If you ceased to be useful as a slave, they would be done with you. They would sell you or worse, you would be cast out. So it was very achievement orientated. You had to remain useful. You had to keep achieving. And actually, Paul, in another letter he wrote to another church, says that Christians can get into this too if they're not careful. 1 Corinthians 13, he says, look, even the most outwardly gifted Christians, like people who are, who are prophetic, perhaps even they're quite wise, perhaps they've got lots of faith, perhaps they're even super generous with their money. But if they don't have love, He says they're like a clanging cymbal, like a car alarm at four in the morning. It's a a shocking, awful noise. If they behave like that out of slavery, not out of a spirit of adoption. So slaves are achievement orientated. Slaves also live in fear of punishment, don't they? If you are a slave, that is how you would be motivated. You do well or you are punished. Perhaps we think, oh, if I get this wrong, God is going to tell me off for my mistakes or I'm going to get in big trouble. Slaves as well have no security in life because they have no control in life. They have no security, so they don't trust. They don't trust God. Perhaps they don't trust other people around them. Slaves also compare themselves. And when you compare yourself, you're comparing everyone yourself to everyone else like they too are also a slave. And so when you compare, you you want other people to be punished. Oh, they've done badly. They should be punished. Or perhaps that you just mistrust them or think ill of their motives all the time. Or perhaps it's just 
being judgmental of them. You're a slave, they're a slave. I'm judging you for how you're behaving. Or simply, perhaps, you just want to beat them. You want to win in the competition of life. Slaves live in fear of each other. That's the dynamic in in slave relationships because somebody is always trying to get themselves into their master's good books. In order to do that, they want to make you look bad. But children of a good father, of of a loving family, that's not how it works. It's not competitive in the same way. Perhaps when Paul wrote this, you wonder if he had the story of the the prodigal son in his mind. And the important character in the prodigal son is the older brother. He's the one who kind of begins and ends the story. He's a fascinating character. And he compared himself to the younger brother, didn't he? He wanted him punished because the older brother had been good, had stuck with the father, even though he didn't really like him very much. And he wanted victory over the younger brother. So when the father begged him, look, come and celebrate. Your, your little brother is home. He's returned. Uh, I've given him a cloak. I've put a ring on his finger. He's part of the family again. Isn't that brilliant? And the older brother refused to celebrate. Why? Because he was a slave. He had a spirit of slavery. He wanted to beat his brother. So knowing that we are children, not slaves, is very important, isn't it, to us? So that's our first characteristic. We are children, not slaves. And then uh, Paul moves on for our second characteristic. Actually, if we are children, not slaves, we cry out, we don't fall back. So slaves fall into fear. In fact, they live in fear, whereas children cry out to their father. So if we follow God as a slave, we live in that way, like achievement orientated, fear of punishment, always looking to beat other people in fear of other people, then actually there is a real chance of us falling back. Slaves compare themselves to each other. They don't look to their father. So when I first planted, actually it was Fallowfields uh, that we first planted back in 2009, uh, there was uh, another guy in a different city who planted a church basically at the same moment. Uh, and I knew him a little bit. We knew each other a tiny bit, not very well. Um, but his church went from naught to 100 in like weeks. I mean, just the thing exploded and loads of people were joining his church and he was doing fantastically well. And uh, at the conferences that we would go to as part of our movement at churches, he would be on the platform, the great idealized church planter. He looked cool as well. Everything about him was cool. And uh, he did great. And everybody was raving about him. And that's how you plant a church. And I was at the back row and nobody even knew who I was. That's how well my church plant was going at that time. They didn't even look at me in pity. It was more, who's, who invited him? Who's that guy? Uh, but for me, actually, there was a slave mentality in that. And I fell back into fear a little bit. And actually, it was good for me. It helped me to think, actually, you know what? This is about my relationship with my father in heaven, regardless of performance or achievement. And perhaps you yourselves know something similar to this. I don't know if you've experienced this as as a parent. You found yourself in a conversation with another parent. And it's one of those conversations, you can see it coming, but when it gets to you, like, oh man, how did I get into this? It's the competitive child, kind of competitive parent conversation, where they are listing all of their child's achievements, right? You've had this, they can code at the age of six. They learn to play the tumor. They can swim like Michael Phelps. They have activities every night of the week. They're the most well-rounded child I've ever met in my life, all of this stuff. And you're in a conversation, think, 
Mine can't eat breakfast without putting it on the floor. That's the stage I'm at at the moment. And uh, when they do manage to keep most in the bowl, that is a good day. Uh, I'm not teaching them tuba, that is for sure. But it can produce fear within you, can't it? I've known it myself. You, you just think, oh gosh, my kid isn't as good as theirs or whatever it might be. Or my church isn't as good as their church. And actually, fear can get hold Whereas actually, there is a call here from Paul. Actually, instead of running back to fear in those moments, we cry out to God. Actually, to be a child of God, as Paul is explaining, requires a little bit of initiative on our parts. So he says, look, we are adopted. God does all of that. He adopts us through the power of his Holy Spirit, brings us into his family. Brilliant moment. But this means we get to cry out to him. So this isn't the cry of a slave, the cry of duty. The cry of trying to look good and not get into trouble. This isn't the the cry of good presentation, so people think that I'm doing well. It is the cry of whatever it is at that moment. Joy, because life is good. Uh, Help, because life is tough. Thanks, because you're just rejoicing. Whatever it is, it's the cry of a child. We know that when our kids cry, they're just crying because of whatever is going on at that moment. When our adoption becomes clear to us, we, we see the benefit and we cry out to God's with whatever we've got going on in life at the moment. But that cry is a choice that we get to make, actually. To beat those moments of fear, we get to either run to the fear or run to God. So I don't know about you, but the last few years have been packed full of fear, haven't they? I don't know if anybody else has been slightly unnerved by a global pandemic, but I certainly have. And there could be real moments of fear with the impact of lockdown on your kids. So... I remember watching uh, Abby doing her, she's just online class. I remember looking over her shoulder. This is a maths lesson. Usually there's 30 of them in the classroom. I'm like, I can see six screens. That can't be good, can it, for kids learning at school? And she hated it. Uh, And so you think, oh, what impact is this going to have? Or, excuse me, if you don't know me, I can be emotional. (laughs) Not every time. But today. But today, Yes. (laughs) But actually, uh, impact on Vic, who's a nurse uh, with pandemic, has not been easy. And so in those moments, do you go to fear or do you cry out to God? It's a big decision, isn't it? Isn't it? For all of us. Actually, when I was writing this, I was thinking, there are people here, even this morning, who when fear comes, it's a big moment. And you find yourself pulled to fear. We get to cry out. When we approach God, actually, he's not looking for a brave face, which is good because I don't do brave faces. He wants us to cry. So I would find myself, when life was tough in a pandemic, actually, I would just go for a walk. It was easy for us to do. Just the age of kids were out. I think, I'm just going to go for a walk because I need to cry out, not go to fear. And actually, the Fallowfield Loop got very well walked in 2020 and 2021. And you would just tell God about your fear. You would just talk about what it was and that was a cry as we cry out Paul explains this as we cry Abba Father something happens and it's not something we get to control particularly it's not even something we can necessarily engineer but it is something that God does within us and he describes it like this verse 16 he says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God's So the Spirit reminds us who we are. So when we cry out, it's like the Holy Spirit saying, yep, that's right, he's your Father in heaven. And he works on our own spirit. 
It's like he says, yep, don't be scared. You are my child. When we cry out, God changes us. He actually takes us out of a slave way of thinking, a slave way of behaving, a slave mentality, and puts you into a family way of thinking, a family mentality. He actually begins to work on your heart. And if there is one thing actually to take home from today, one thing to remember is simply when you go to cry out to God not to fear, he begins to change you. It's not an easy journey. It's not something that happens straight away, but as a routine of life and a routine of your faith to find yourself going, yeah, I'll go to God not to fear, then he will bring change to you. Our third characteristic is that we are privileged. And Paul says, okay, well, if you are children, in verse 17, says, if you're children, then you're also heirs, heirs of God. So when we are part of a family, perhaps a wider family, we get an inheritance. And we might think in terms of property or money, um, whatever it might be, we, we have an inheritance from our parents or perhaps from other family members. And Paul has something else in mind here. Because usually when we think of inheritance, we might think objects, right, or, or cash or whatever it might be. Uh, Paul is saying, actually, your inheritance is God himself. That's who you get. So he's been talking about being a son of God, a child of God, being adopted into this family. So our inheritance is actually to receive God by his Holy Spirit. This is very important, actually. It's something that they, they thought about in the Old Testament. That for them was the, the great thing, that they would get God themselves. Psalm 73 actually articulates this. The first three verses we'll read and then we'll read the end bit. The first three verses, Psalm 73, say, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, this is the psalmist writing, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps have nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And actually, this is a little bit of a confession of a slave mentality there, isn't it? He's competitive. I could see other people were doing well. And in fact, they were doing well in finance and prospering. I, I want that. I'm performance driven. I'm insecure. I'm competitive. I want those things. And he says, I almost slipped. I almost fell. It was dragging him down. And he goes on a journey of repentance. And the end of Psalm 73 says this. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hands. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I shall desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the privilege. She's saying, I, there's nothing on heaven or earth that I want more than you, God. You're my inheritance. You're what I get. And not only that, you strengthen my heart. So those uh, things that were causing the arrogant to prosper, the wicked to thrive in life, those things actually were, were calling me to slip and stumble. But if I run after you, you make me stronger. You make my heart stronger. He is not a slave. He is a son. So we've seen we're, we're children, not slaves. We get to cry out, not fall back into fear. We get to have this privilege of inheriting God's. And then finally, and this is the glamorous one that you're all going to be excited about and talk about over dinner when you get home, you think, oh, I can't wait for this to happen. I'm really going to push into this. Finally, we get to suffer. That's what we get to do. 
And the last line says, and fellow heirs, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I like the way he throws in the word provided there, just as a little, a little thing for us. Yes, you can be heirs. However, this is what your life is about. Jesus' obedience to the Father causes him to suffer, doesn't it? An inescapable truth causes him to suffer even into death. And we are called, actually, down that same path. And this is just a reminder. Paul just throws at the end, okay, we get to be heirs with God. We get to be part of his family. However, that is not an easy call. Being a son and daughter of God is not just for the good times. It's not for the easy times. We sat with some friends in the summer, old friends. We knew them before we got married. They got married a couple of years before us. We kind of met in their community group. Um, so it was about 25 years ago we got to know them. And uh, as we sat with them, we'd not seen them for about 20 years. And we were sitting in a pub. And they explained, basically, that they had given up on their faith. They were actually doing pretty well in their work lives. Uh, their kids were now growing up to a point, lovely kids. Uh, and life looked like it was going well for them. But actually, they decided they'd effectively given up on church, given up on following Jesus. And as we talked, we realized this was driven by discomfort, just by the difficulty of pandemic had brought loads of things out, by their own disappointments, by their own kind of sense of call, not quite having worked out in the way that they had wanted it to. They effectively were like, we're done. We're giving up. And me and Vic drove away, and we were just sad. There was a real sadness of, I don't understand why you would do that. Because actually, as fellow heirs with Christ, we get to go through the difficulty of life as a child of God. Not as a slave who's underperforming, or or sees other people around them doing much better than them, or, or just thinks, I need God to love me, I need to do much better. Actually, it's Psalm 73. I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. So I think those who are led by the Spirit actually are easy to spot when disaster comes, right? When life is difficult, they cry out to their father.